Hey everyone, it's Alex Patterson, Executive Director at Canada 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic is moving quickly, as is the news and information around it. That's why our team on the 2020 Network is focused on giving you some balanced perspective on the story as it develops. But to do that, we need some help. That's why for the next few weeks, we have asked Jody Butts to host a special series going deeper into the scientific, policy, public health, and economic forces at play with COVID-19. She's a good friend of ours at 2020 and has years of experience working in the health system. We hope you find it helpful. Here's Jody. Hey, everyone. I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network brought to you by Interact. I've been working in healthcare in Canada for the last 15 years, including in the acute care sector at Mount Sinai Hospital, as well as in mental health. Today, I invest in and sit on the boards of directors and advisory boards of several healthcare organizations, including Bayshore Home Healthcare and Dot Health. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Gardem, Humber River Hospital's Chief of Staff and the Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Previously, Michael was the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. Michael, thanks for joining me on the phone today to talk about how Canadians can stay safe during a pandemic. So, um, you know, what we're seeing every day when we uh, look at our phones uh, are that this coronavirus-19, COVID-19, continues to spread as a major health threat across the globe. Uh, the World Health Organization has declared uh, a pandemic, and they are telling countries that uh, we should all be ready for sustained community transmission. In Canada, few people have died, but as new cases are discovered daily, questions keep popping up uh, and people are uh, looking for guidance as to how they should uh, be living their lives uh, under these new social distancing conditions. So let's just start off with what's social distancing? Well, in, in simple terms, social distancing is basically avoiding other people. And so if you think about your normal day pre-pandemic, you know, you get up, you're with your family, you go down an elevator, you may go to a subway or get into your car. If you're on a subway or public transit, you're in with hundreds of people. Uh, you go to your workplace, you may meet people for coffee, you go up to your office, you may chat with people while you're there. Um, you may go out for lunch after work, you may go to a movie or may go out and visit friends. All of that, every one of those things that I've mentioned, you need to think about and decide, is this something that uh, you need to do right now? And so some obvious things are, you know, do you need to go to a show that might have 500 people in the audience? Do you need to go to a restaurant where, which, where it's very crowded or go to a bar? Um, social distancing is really about looking at everything that you do and trying to limit your contact with other people so that you're never you're you're ultimately trying to never be within uh, two meters of somebody else. Now, obviously, with your family, that's that's not going to happen. But with other people, with strangers, you're trying to keep your distance from people all the time. And we've heard so much about the importance of cleaning hands. We're all singing various tunes to make sure we're we're, we're doing it long enough. How frequently do you need to clean your hands? It really is whenever you touch something. And so, you know, like if I'm sitting in my office here and I know that my office that, you know, it was, it was, it was clean when I got in here, I'm not cleaning my hands every five minutes in my office. If nobody is in here, when somebody comes in though, they clean their hands. Uh, they're, I'm not going to shake their hand. They'll sit two meters away from me. And when they're done, I'm going to wash my hands again. And so 
once I'm out and about walking through the hospital, I'm washing them very frequently because you use your hands for all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and so when you're on your own, you don't need to worry about it too much. But especially when you're out and about, you need to be washing your hands very frequently. Any advice on our handheld devices? Yeah, that's really tricky. And that's probably, you know, when people are getting infected with this, there's got to be a, a component that's due to, you know, constantly using our phones, talking into our phones, touching our phones, etc. And so you can certainly wipe down your, your phone with uh, isopropyl alcohol works. Uh, any sort of disinfectant wipes are fine. Um, the less water in them, the better, because that's what might damage the circuitry. So isopropyl alcohol is good because it likely won't damage the circuitry. And it's really wiping it down and then letting it stay wet so you don't actually dry it off because it, there is a certain a number of minutes for contact time for those uh, different products to actually work uh, in terms of killing the, killing the virus. So um, I do try to wipe down my phone at least four or five times a day. And when I'm using my phone, I'm trying to wash my hands after I've used it. That is great advice. Uh, I don't know how many times you see somebody wash their hands and then touch their phone. And, and I suppose that's okay. So long as they're always have clean hands when, when they're touching their, their phone. Are there any other common items you, you were saying you observed people, you know, using phones all the time and that you, you wonder about our phones? Is, are there any other items that, that, that you think about that people should pay some special attention to? Well, I think anything that you're going to be touching regularly. So phone is probably the number one because we tend to hold them quite close to, uh, to our faces, right? So phones are the number one thing. I do try to clean my keyboard on a regular basis, you know, um, I don't worry so much about trying to run around cleaning doorknobs because honestly, you know, if I can push the elevator button with my elbow, I'll do it. If I can open a door with my elbow, I'll do it. Uh, but otherwise, I'm just making sure I wash my hands afterwards. Um, you know, the big place where I really see a very big risk for people is on public transit. I haven't taken public transit for a couple of weeks exactly because of the social distancing reason. Uh, but last time I was on it, not only are people scrunched together, but they're also all on their phones and they're also all in close contact with each other and grabbing onto the handrails. And that is a got to be a very high risk setting uh, for people. And so um, at that time, I didn't have any alcohol gel with me. And so, first of all, I, I didn't use my phone. I held home with one hand and then I basically reminded myself, don't touch anything, don't touch anything until you can get home and actually wash your hands. And that was the last time that I was on, I've been on transit. Yeah, because you can't always control the social distancing on public transit either. I think, you know, uh, I'm uh, speaking with you from Ottawa and I know um, there's been decreased usage of public transportation here in Ottawa um, but, you know, if you get on a busy car, it's, it's really difficult to, to know uh, what to do. If you find yourself in that situation, what would be your advice? Well, since I was just joking about this a few minutes ago, but the last time I took transit, what I did, which is socially awkward, is I made sure I wasn't facing anybody. Um, and so normally people will often face the interior of the bus. So if you're on the outside, you're facing in etc. And people coughing or sneezing, the droplets, the infectious particles you have to worry about are, are the ones that are coming kind of right at you, because uh, that's where the majority of the virus is. And so 
if I'm standing off to the side of the of of the bus, uh, like you know, next to the bus wall or the subway wall, I'm actually facing the wall, um, which can feel a bit awkward for people. That I, you know, I really don't care. It's really about uh, not getting sprayed in the face when somebody sneezes or coughs, and and I think that's actually truthfully looking at how these viruses are spread not being in the line of fire of those droplets is actually very important yes I, I, and you know i think that's why we're seeing you know uh you know orders and requests and direction to uh close down uh large venues um could yep. you break it could, could you give us a sense like so so if if we were to go to you know, either um, a sport, a sporting event, or or theater, or something. How many rows are we actually talking about? Where where you, where you would have to be distanced from somebody? You know, really, what we we talk about is you want to try to maintain two meters from somebody else, and not all two meters are sort of created equal. So, if you are sitting behind somebody and that person is is facing straight ahead, and you're facing straight ahead. I'm not so worried about that person because they're facing away from me. It's the people on the sides of you that really matter. But overall, you want to try to stay two meters, ideally. One meter is certainly better than, than nothing. But you're trying to keep a distance between you and everybody else. And so if you're in an enclosed space, that may be very hard to do. Yeah, and uh, just to say kudos on the advice for public transportation, you know, that's something that everyone can do, right? You can turn your 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 back to somebody uh, if you do find your, yourself in that situation. And these things feel hard to do. We're, we're unlearning a lot of things. Um, what are you doing for shaking hands these days? You know what? Uh, people I'm running into, nobody's shaking hands anymore, um, you know. I don't care if I bump your elbow or not. That really doesn't matter to me. I'm just gonna say, I'm just gonna say hello to you and and keep my hands to myself, right? And and I think that, um, you know, shaking hands is such an old custom, and and it's something that in the middle of a pandemic just seems like it really is not necessary to do. And 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 everybody I've run into lately are probably even more concerned about it than I am. I mean, I figure, hey, if I had to shake someone's hand, I would just go wash my hands immediately afterwards. But others are, you know, even more concerned than that and don't even offer their hand. And I'm, I'm fine with that because I'm not offering my hand either. Is there any other kind of common habits uh, that, 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 you know, you've observed in, in daily life um, that, you know, uh, should be discouraged today and that you wouldn't necessarily be sad to go <laughs> even in a post-pandemic uh, world? Buffets would be my number one thing. I just think we should get rid of buffets. You know, I think that um, for me, the one common behavior which uh, has to go and has to go forever is people coming to work well ill. And this is something that I've been talking about for years. Um, And, you know, there's going to be some circumstances where you don't have a choice. You, you have to come to work well ill. And I, I can imagine that that could happen in some settings. Like I was in a situation once uh, a couple of years ago where I actually had quite a bad cold. The other doctor working in my clinic with me couldn't come. We had a whole slew of tuberculosis patients that had to be seen because that's what I do for a living. Um, 
but I was I was fairly sick, so I actually plunked myself in one of our exam rooms. I put on a surgical mask, and I work with nurses and nurse practitioners in my clinic. And they basically came to me in that room. We discussed the cases, and I actually didn't go in to see any patients. Now, that may not be available for all doctors, and I'm not suggesting that it should be. I'm just making the point that I, I definitely changed my behavior because I was sick. And for most days, if I didn't have a clinic, I would just not go to work. And the number of people that you see up until now, now you don't see it so much. People, I think, have finally gotten the message. But prior to this pandemic, the number of people walking around uh, the business setting or the work setting who are hacking up a lung is appalling. And you know they're going to infect at least, you know, on average, two to three other people who are then going to be off sick, and then this is going to spread through your business, and you know people are going to be off sick. And if that one person would have worked from home, and many of us can do that now, and I think this pandemic is going to show that probably most of us don't need to be in an office space anymore after the end of this. If that one person would have worked from home, you could have prevented that entire cascade. And that's something that I'm really more and more vocal about. I'm sick of people coming into work sick. I'm sick of them being the hero. I'm sick of them feeling that they're too important, that they have to be at work. Hey, you can still work, but chances are 90% of what you do, you can do from home. Yes, and I I think we're seeing a proliferation of um, technologies and, you know, uh, Companies like Cisco um, and Zoom are opening up their resources to people. So I think, you know, I, I'm hopeful that 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 we'll see um, a change in that culture um, because without question, we are living in an always on time, and I yep. think that's where some of that pressure comes from. But 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 if we get more, if we view virtual meetings as uh, as high of quality as in-person meetings, uh, then hopefully some of that pressure gets removed to, to come into to the office. That, that, that's a great uh, example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I wanted to, this is such an important issue, I just want to make sure that, that we get to it. Let's talk about masks. So precautions yeah. in the context of you as a healthcare worker versus someone who is self uh, isolating at home as as a precaution against community transmission. Right. So there's been a lot of talk about masks. Uh, just I think either yesterday or today, the New York Times had an op-ed on how all the advice we've been giving about masks is wrong. And people jump on these articles and send them around. And, and we're always second guessing everything that we're doing. And, and I think we need to take it back to like the primary principles of how these uh, viruses, including uh, this coronavirus, how they're how they're transmitting. Like, what are the circumstances under which they are they are transmitted, and then act accordingly with masks. So, for your average person who's not a healthcare worker, wearing a mask down the street makes absolutely no sense. Uh, wearing a mask down the street when you're in a massive crowd of people makes sense. It's purely around who are you around, like, and how close are they to you? So on average, you know, Toronto is not Hong Kong. Usually you can walk down a street and not worry about somebody being like right up in front of your face. That's different when you get on transit. Wearing a mask on, on, on transit, frankly, that would be a reasonable thing to do. Wearing it walking down the street outside, not a reasonable thing to do. 
Um, so that's the key thing, I think, is that masks. I've never said uh, to people that masks aren't useful. It's just you need to use them when it makes sense to use them, which is when you're right in front of people. It's the same thing, for example, in hospitals right now. I get a lot of questions, like if I'm walking down the hallway, should I be wearing a surgical mask? And as my answer is, well, unless you're in such a crowded hallway that people are constantly within one meter of your face, then no. Um, but you would put it on as soon as you are starting to provide clinical care or you're getting in a very crowded situation, that sort of thing. The other important use of masks is when someone is ill, giving them a surgical mask will help catch a lot of the droplets that they're coughing out. And there is some evidence showing that that is probably a, a, a very a very good strategy to uh, prevent spread. Not, not completely prevent it, but at least, you know, make it less likely that you're going to spread. And so, you know, somebody who is ill wearing a mask uh, is a reasonable thing to do as well. Um, and we've been hearing that, you know, uh, there's been some difficulty in terms of healthcare organizations um, accessing masks. Are you, are you able to speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have stockpiles of masks and we have stockpiles of N95 respirators. And all of our pandemic planning is based around influenza because that's typically the organism that causes pandemics that we've dealt with over the last few hundred years. And so influenza peaks are typically sort of four to six weeks. You get most of the activity in a fairly short time period. Um, none of us stockpiled for six months, right? And so the ministry, the governments in Canada have also stockpiled supplies. I don't know the amount of the stockpiles, but I know they have stockpiled them. Uh, but none of us have stockpiled for multiple months without getting our supplies uh, replenished. So that's, that's definitely a concern. And that's one of the things I think that is challenging for us now, because although we're taking all these, these uh, social distancing measures now in Canada, the vast majority of people do not have this virus yet, right? That's going to increase week by week, and it's going to increase exponentially. So soon we will have a fair number of people with this virus. But right now we don't, yet I am aware of organizations that have burned through most of their supplies already. And that's obviously very worrisome because we've burned through them at a time when we didn't really need to wear them yet. And so that's a problem. The other problem is theft, to be blunt. I mean, we've had supplies stolen from hospitals. Uh, people come in, take the masks, take the, take the wipes, take the alcohol gel. Uh, take the gloves. And so, you know, a number of organizations, mine included, have made it harder to find these things, which is also challenging because one of the golden rules of personal protective equipment is it should be easy to use. It should be easy to find. And so we're, we're struggling a bit with that right now. Um, but we really do need to use these when we need them and not just all the time. Uh, and so that's another reason not to walk down a relatively empty hallway wearing a surgical mask. That's that's one less mask we have for later on when we're definitely going to need it. So I think that's a really important and strong message, you know, for the public, just how precious uh, masks are uh, for our healthcare workers. Um, uh, I uh, I wanted to bring up two things. So one is. 
Um, if there uh, are any listeners to this podcast who are caring for someone uh, in the home who is either elderly or immunocompromised, do you have any advice for them what they should be doing? Yeah, that's a really tough one, right? So if you've got an elderly person who relies very much on one family member to, you know, to visit them, to care for them, et cetera. I mean, we, we're going through that in, in my own family right now with with uh, with uh, one of my brothers. And the, you know, my advice to him is you have to stay healthy because if you're going to visit mom, you have to be able to do that confidently. And so the pressure on him for social distancing is even greater. Right. And making sure that he's well and making sure that even when he visits, uh, if he's able to visit right now, he's not able to visit. But when he is able to visit, keeping that that social distancing again, he can bring her food and things like that. But it goes through the front desk. He doesn't bring it up directly. These are all things to think about uh, him washing his hands very carefully. Um, and if there's any inkling that he's ill, he can't go near her. And so that's really tricky. Now, if you're living with somebody and you have no choice, then it's a matter of if you're ill, then that's when you should be wearing a mask if you're ill and cleaning your hands and still trying to keep as much social distance as you can. But that's obviously, for some people, that's going to be really hard to do. And I don't have great answers for them, except you do what you can. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult, right? There's so many people who um, are care providers for so many others. Um, and here we are in, in such a, you know, such a different context, right? Like the pressures kind of suddenly, uh, the deck got shuffled there. Um, so speaking of that shuffle deck, we've been hearing a lot about flattening the curve. Yep. I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of knit this together for people, um, what that means. Um, you know, we've talked about social distancing. We've talked about washing our hands, yep. uh, the challenges of what, when taking care of people. So, so how does that all lead into flattening the curve and what's the curve? Yeah. So everything we're talking about is going to lead to less spread of the virus. It's not going to stop the spread of the virus. So let me give you two sort of extreme examples. So let's say in, on the one example, we don't do anything. We don't wash our hands. We don't care. We don't socially distance. We just say, bring it on, you know, bring on the virus. So in that setting, obviously people are going to be in crowds. They're not going to be doing anything to prevent transmission. And so if you think about the exponential spread of the virus, one person spreads on average to roughly 2.2 um, to 2.5 people. So let's just say two to make the math easy. Uh, so in the first week, you've spread to two, those have spread to two, and then those have spread to eight, and then 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. You get the sense of how quickly this is going up exponentially. And it's doing that, it's doubling every three to four days. So you can see how you're going from just a few cases to thousands of cases very quickly. And we saw that in Italy where they really didn't have control measures early on. And they went from a handful of cases to thousands of cases in a matter of roughly three weeks. And that's just simple math. That's just exponential increases. So that's the if we don't do anything scenario. If we bring in social distancing and hand washing and smart use of masks, then maybe one person isn't going to spread to two people on average. Maybe they'll only spread to one and a half people on average. 
right? So then uh, you can do that mathematically. You can't do that biologically. But let's say so you've got one person goes to 1.5, goes to 3. You can see how it's the curve is rising slower. And so that's what we describe when we say flattening the curve. You're not getting that explosive number of cases like Italy had. You're getting a slower increase in cases. The danger with the really explosive number of cases is that it overwhelms your healthcare system. You can't manage everybody in, in, in such a short time frame. It's a little bit like dealing with a tidal wave hitting the shore. Everything happens all at once versus a flood where you can see it rising every day, but you have more time to evacuate. You have more time to do things. We're trying to get into a flood situation, not a tidal wave situation. And all the stuff that we've talked about is hopefully going to slow down the spread, which means the epidemiologic curve gets drawn out. We'll still, presumably at the end of all of this, have as many infections as we would have regardless. But it's way better to deal with a flood than it is to deal with a tidal wave. And um, we're seeing like a real fluctuation in mortality rates. Um, so some people, um, you know, are seeing low rates and then you pick up the newspaper another day and you're seeing very high rates. Is that tied to the resilience of the healthcare system, like its ability to respond to the number of sick? It definitely is. And that's one of the theories with Wuhan and probably with Italy as well, is why is their mortality rate so much higher? Part of it's because the system got absolutely overwhelmed. And so those people who may have been saved if they got oxygen or may have been saved if they could have been put on a ventilator for two days couldn't get access, so they died. Um, there's also other deaths which we're not even counting, which are people who are coming in with a heart attack who may need a ventilator and there's no ventilator for them, so they die. We're not counting those cases. So the mortality rate, the overall mortality rate associated with this that includes people who are sort of secondary damage is even higher. And so if you're in a situation where you're able to handle the actual uh, increase in cases, if, you're a if you don't overwhelm your system, that mortality rate drops substantially and it's probably closer to about 0.5 to 1% rather than the 3 to 4% that we're seeing in, in, uh, in countries that get, that get overwhelmed. So again, it speaks to if you can flatten the curve, you can save thousands upon thousands of lives. And looking at the modeling in the United States, you're talking hundreds of thousands of lives can be saved by uh, social distancing measures. So we have our marching orders. Now, what, what should we do if we feel like we're, we have a cough or, or we're, we're experiencing, you know, flu-like or cold-like symptoms? Where, where should we turn first? Well, the first thing is that, you know, every government in Canada has websites that gives you information on what to do, what to do next. And so, you know, the, the first step would be it doesn't mean you automatically have to go to an emergency room or you automatically have to get swapped for this. If you've got mild symptoms, uh, you're going to be told to stay home until you're better. Uh, and that may be the end of it, right? You just, you're just not going to come into work with those symptoms. And so I spend my days weeding through healthcare workers and telling them to stay home until they're better. With healthcare workers, it's a little bit different in that I actually really need you to come to work. It's not like if you're a frontline nurse, you can work from home. And so what we're doing there is, in some cases, we are trying to get them tested 
And if they're negative, we know, okay, then as soon as you're feeling better, you come back to work like our usual protocol. And if you're positive, then you're staying off longer as per public health direction for the, for, for the moment. Um, so mild symptoms, typically you just stay home. You don't get tested. There may be some circumstances where we want to test you because of your job. Uh, if you're feeling sicker, though, um, and you're having difficulty breathing, you're feeling very lethargic, you've got a high temperature, which isn't getting better, like you're really sick, that's the time when you should be seeking medical attention. And right now, it seems like most people are being directed towards emergency departments. Uh, many family doctor's offices have said if you're in that situation, they can't see you. Um, and so that's when you would seek medical attention because you're, you're unwell. Not so much because of the diagnosis, but because you may need help in terms of care. You may need oxygen. You may need whatever else we need to provide you. Now, people may find that a little um, unsettling. You know, the idea that, well, if I feel I might be sick, isn't it important that I get a test and know whether I'm positive? Why is that not the case? Um, in an ideal world, I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, we're still in cold and flu season, though, and the number of tests that we would have to do on people is overwhelming. And so we're not going to be able to test everybody. And this is very analogous to regular flu season. We don't test everybody for influenza. We test a proportion of the population for influenza, typically more likely to test the people who are sicker who actually end up in hospital. But your average person, if you had a headache and muscle aches and fever and chills and maybe a cough for two days, in regular flu season, you wouldn't come forward and probably get tested. And really, at the end of the day, there's really no difference with this. If there was a well-defined, you know, uh, very effective treatment available, that would be a very different story. But there is no there is no treatment for this virus beyond just you getting better on your own. And so it's hard to say how we could test every single person with those symptoms. I do understand it. If I had those symptoms, I would be extremely curious as a healthcare worker. I probably would bring my felt myself forward to test for testing because otherwise I could end up not being able to work and care for patients, which during the sore, during the surge is going to be a really big deal. But by and large, if I wasn't a healthcare worker and I wasn't feeling that badly, I would just stay home. And I think that the really important thing that you said there is it really doesn't change anything. The advice is the same. You yeah. have to self-isolate. You need to stay home and you need to limit your interactions with people as much as possible. And the people at home who are caring for you need to uh, practice social distancing nevertheless as much as they can and wash their hands frequently. Yeah, and as long as they are feeling well, they can continue to be out and about, but as soon as they get symptoms, then they're stuck at home too. And so there's no doubt that these things spread through families. I mean, it, it's uh, pretty common, especially if you have young children, that if they're sick, you're going to get sick two days later. And that's there's really no easy way around that. Uh, but you coming in with mild illness to get, to get a test isn't going to change that scenario. All you've done is dragged yourself out, gotten a test, and now you're still going home and you're still in isolation. Which I think leads to another really important point. So, you know, when we hear from public health about um, stocking up on uh, your regular medications and, you know, having food in the house, it's not because we're worried about food shortages. It's just so that if 
the illness does go through your family and it is uh, unwise and unsafe for the community for you to go outside your home while ill. It's just so that you'll have enough food and other necessary supplies on hand. That's exactly right. It's not like we're expecting the food apocalypse, right? I mean, the the reality is, and we've, we've had two and a half months of experience with this virus now, we know the vast majority of the population is not going to get ill enough to be hospitalized, which means our food transportation networks and everything are still going to work. Um, and there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance there, because now that I've said that, then people are like, so then why the heck are we doing all this social distancing and all this other stuff? It's because... So many people have the potential to get infected with this. And even if only a small proportion require hospitalization, that's still a very large number. You have to remember that with flu, on average, influenza infects 15 to 20% of people every winter. Most of us do not get the flu every winter. And this virus, since none of us have uh, antibodies to it, theoretically, it could infect all of us. I mean, it probably wouldn't do that because as you infect more and more of the population, it gets harder and harder to spread. But certainly up to three quarters of the population could get infected with this over the coming months to one to two years. And so that's a much bigger number than we would see with influenza. Yes, absolutely. And um, I guess another important message is if you haven't gotten your flu vaccine yet, uh, Ottawa Public Health and I'm sure public health um, offices uh, across the country are encouraging you to please get your flu shot. But it's still important to get it even today. Yeah. And I mean, that that message gets people confused. I know the president of the U.S. has been very confused by that flu shot message. Obviously, the flu shot does nothing with respect to this coronavirus. They're two completely different viruses. It does not protect you at all from the coronavirus. But it does, you know, this year's flu shot wasn't bad. It was about 60% effective. So it is it is mostly preventing you from getting influenza, which looks identical to this. And so it's just one less person spreading something that looks identical to COVID-19. And that seems like a good thing to me. I mean, we're getting near the end of the fl- of the influenza season, but what's interesting is, I mean, it's still hanging on. Like normally, it would really be on its way out by now, and we still have moderate amounts of influenza going around the country, which is a bit unusual. Yes, and so I would I would like to you know wrap up our conversation on a positive note. So you know, talk to me. We, we've we've heard some really uh, great stories. Uh, uh, from around the world, but also from Canada in terms of isolating the virus and, and different uh, scientific advancements. Um, where are we today? Um, and, you know, what, what what do you have to say about hopes around a vaccine? Yeah, you know, there is a lot going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of joke that every day I wake up, I think, well, we're one day closer to a vaccine uh, because this can be kind of all this can be all coronavirus all the time, right? It's very hard to escape from it. Uh, I, I used to enjoy reading the newspapers. I can't even do that anymore because it's just nonstop coronavirus. But I think that there are a number of things that are going on that are, are hopeful. One would be we have seen countries actually do a, quite a good job controlling this. So not all of us are going to get into the same trouble that uh, Wuhan did initially or that uh, Italy has gotten into 
we may be able to have a very a very different future from them and that's that's the hope right that's why we're doing all this stuff right now there's also serologic studies going on which will help us get a better sense of what proportion of the population is actually infected with this but never had any symptoms because if that's a large number that's encouraging because it means that those people likely can't get infected again so it's making it harder for the virus to spread. So we'll learn about that. There's, there, are, there are drug trials going on, looking and seeing if there are drugs, if given early enough, can actually help people not get on a ventilator or be able to survive being on a ventilator. You know, so there's a bunch of this going on. And then finally, the vaccine. You know, there's a number of organizations looking at vaccines, and they've already identified potential uh, candidates for the vaccine and some of them have already entered phase one clinical trials so that's moving very quickly again you know there was confusion in the u.s there's a big difference between having a candidate vaccine and having a vaccine that you can give to people so you've got a candidate vaccine you now have to check to make sure that it's safe you have to figure out what the dose is and you have to figure out whether it works and those trials all of them take months for each one and so that's why people are saying, you know, probably 18 months. Uh, so now we're probably 16 months because they started saying 18 months, two months ago. So maybe we're 16 months at this point, but we're still a ways out before you can say this vaccine is safe. We know the dose and it works because occasionally vaccines either don't work or may actually cause harm. And there have been a few circumstances in the past 50 years where uh, a vaccine, for example, for RSV, which is another virus, uh, which is a, is a big pathogen in children. Back uh, decades ago, a prototype vaccine was actually shown to make infections worse, not better. So once in a while that happens because you're working with the immune system and, and once in a while, a really good idea may not pan out when you actually use it. And so that's why you can't just rush it to the market. You actually have to be really sure that what you're doing actually makes sense and it's safe and it's and it actually and it actually works. Well, I'm certainly keeping my fingers crossed and I want to thank you enormously for spending this time with me for sharing your expertise and sharing your wisdom and uh, from uh, the bottom of my heart be well Dr. Gautam. Thank you so much.